0: to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan, and we can podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and as always, I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in Kings and Chronicles again, in case you're not too tired of these books. Uh, We will be taking a break next week as we start into the prophets, but um, we're going to do this and uh, finish up Romans and uh, uh, Mark this week, so... um, yeah, so we're picking up in 2 Kings 11, uh, where we hear about, once again, Athaliah taking over the reigns uh, in Judah. Um, and she tries to destroy the whole male heritage of behind her so she can stay around as queen. Um yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I think what we're seeing here is like we're seeing this epic battle between light and dark that started out in Genesis three. You know, we see the enemy continually trying to seek to destroy the one that would bring deliverance, uh, to destroy the seed of the woman, and we see that with Cain and Abel. We see it through barrenness. We see it through Pharaoh's decree to kill little boys, and we see it through here. I mean, Satan is trying to wipe out the line of David, and he probably thinks he has done it at this point. But we know that God is sovereign and so so, um, God provides Seth, he opens wombs, he uses midwives. And in this case, he provides a courageous aunt to hide Joash. God's sovereign plan will be accomplished.
0: Yep. And the fullness of time, the sort of year of reset and rest and, uh, and rest in that seven year cycle, the priest convinces these group of soldiers to, to protect this saved boy named Joash, who was saved from, uh, Athali as a decree it's great like we haven't seen in a whole lot from the priests in these books um but suddenly we see this priest show up on the scene and he's trying to do the right thing and make the right king take the throne trying to reset this mess that's been caused by the northern and southern intermarrying and ahab's line and everything else and so uh this joash is anointed king little seven-year-old joash gets to be the king and um Athaliah sees it, freaks out, like treason, and so um, uh, they decide they are going to kill her. But um, Jehoiada says, "All right, take her outside the temple." Which is interesting because we're going to see uh, a death later on that's not this way. But um, Jehoiada establishes this covenant between Joash and the people, and the, uh, that they're going to obey Yahweh. And the people go outside and do it. They destroy Baal worship. They kill the priests of Baal, and um, yeah.
1: So after decades. Of incredibly corrupt leadership, we do see a reset, like Chris mentioned, and then making a choice to live under Yahweh's rule and instruction. It just makes me think, or it reminds me that, that we are never too far from God's mercy. I mean, after decades of destruction and terrible leadership and disobedience, um, one person, one faithful priest trusts in Yahweh, and the entire nation has the opportunity to reconcile with God to be people who follow him. So remember, no matter what your wandering looks like, how far away you've wandered, how long you've wandered, restoration is right at our fingertips through asking for mercy, through repentance.
0: Yep. Uh, and Jehoash turns out to be one of the more successful kings, but we do find out Um, He didn't do everything totally awesome. There's still some high places of worship, but he mostly got there, and he had a good 40 years as a king. And it seems like also this priest um, provided this great advisory role to him. Um, When you're a seven-year-old king, certainly um, some adult-wise counsel is always helpful Um, And throughout most of his life. He was he was helpful, and then when he dies later, we'll see him not be so. We'll see uh, Jehoash go off the the deep end there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it says <laughs> that he he ruled faithfully because of the influence of Jehoshai in his life, and so it's a reminder for us that uh, it's it's really hard, if not impossible, for us to faithfully serve God out of outside of community and a support system. Yeah,
0: being an island as a follower of. Yahweh back then, or Jesus, certainly for us uh, who who know the name of Jesus, like, that's you can't do it alone. It's not designed for that. Uh, And so Jehoash uh, wants to rebuild this temple that's been destroyed by um, uh, Athaliah. And so um, he orders the priest to take up a collection. And for whatever reason, it takes him about 23 years before he realizes they haven't really done anything. Uh, But he commands them not to, he kind of dries up their money reserve and says, all right, the only thing you could take money up for is to, to renovate. Um, and you can't do the work. And so, um, they set up an offering box, they fill it up, plenty of people give to it and they hire the masons to go do the work. And so, yeah, it's a success. I mean, it was a little bit of a false start, but ends up being a successful story of the rebuilding of the kim- uh, kingdom. But in the end there, it's, it's sort of interesting. You had the story of Solomon building his temple and then, building his castle, but Joash had a weird end of the story where he, all right, he finished the temple, but then he gives away all this stuff to the Syrians and it's kind of an odd finish to his kingdom without a whole lot of commentary here, at least from the, the author of Kings of, yeah. about it.
1: It makes me wonder Like, I just, did he seek God about what to do about the Assyrians or not? Because, you know, the themes we read in older times, especially around the time of David, was that you would ask God what to do when people were coming after you and you would win the battle. But he doesn't even do that. He just, he works to repair the temple and then just gives all of his stuff away to the Assyrians. And, um, I, I don't know. It doesn't, it seems like he's maybe lost a little bit of direction already.
0: Yep. And he gets killed by some servants who conspire to kill him. And, um, yes, there's more details elsewhere and like in Chronicles, but, um, that's the end of his life. And so, there it is.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Sing- so let's read the same story again in Chronicles. That's
0: right. in Chronicles 23. And so, yeah, uh, here we are again. Uh, there's definitely more of an emphasis on the role of the larger Levites, not mm-hmm. just one priest um, in the story. Um, and it should be pretty telling about how bad this Athaliah or Athaliah um, really was because uh, everyone seems to quickly be totally fine abandoning her. Where he's like, hey, we're going to, we've got this other guy who should be king. And all the guards are like, oh, okay. There's no problem with that. Nobody defends her. And so, of course, she's shocked by all this and treason and she gets put to death. Um, but she's this child murdering, Baal worshiping queen. Like, <clears throat> at some point, this is definitely not a death we should be like, eh, I don't f- know how I feel about all this death. Like, this is right.
1: <laughs> right. And I think, you know, the author of the Chronicles is going to probably, <coughs> this is like a real high point uh, for the author here because of the emphasis and the role the Levites play in restoring Israel, restoring Judah to worshiping God. And then, um, well, I don't, I don't love still reading about the death of Athalia or however you pronounce your name, but I do appreciate seeing how God is using his own people to bring about justice to the wicked rather than foreigners, which has kind of been the case. So at least there are some people who are devoted to doing what is right before God and handling issues within the family, basically.
0: Yep. And Baal worship is kind of torn down, sacrifices and temples seem to be restarted. Um, and it, it's interesting because once again, uh, Chronicles is looking at a time when the people are returning to the land. I mean, time-wise when it was written, people are returning to the land. They're trying to rebuild the temple in some way. They're trying to reestablish uh, the priest system and all that kind of stuff. There's definitely more of a focus on uh, Jehoid. Uh, Jeho, <laughs> Jeho- no- why can I not say it this time around? Jehoiada's. Um, they're trying to focus on Jehoiada as a priest and some of the reestablishment of the priesthood practices as part of the storytelling. Um, and so, yeah. And Joash uh, decides he wants to rebuild the the temple and starts taxing the people. And they're all excited about it for the first time in history. People are super excited about getting taxes. And um, yeah, it's great. And, and they end up, kind of rebuilding this temple or at least starting to rebuild the temple uh, we find out Jehoiada dies at some point and they buried him with the kings they actually treat him like he's a king um, because he had done good in Israel and toward God and in his house and so yeah but um, this is
1: also kind of the turning point for joash when his leader father figure mentor dies Joash ends up kind of surrounding himself by other counselors who don't have um, they're not seeking to fear or please God in what they're doing.
0: Yeah, but it is interesting, like, there's so many names that we, that that we tend to know and affiliate with great things. Um, I don't know how much I go, oh, you know what, there was Jehoiada too. Like, he did everything great. Like there was very little negative written about him and he gets sort of this uh, honorable burial because he did so much for yeah. uh, the people of, of God. And so uh, sometimes we should, we should notice some of these stories because they're few and so few and far between during the season two of what we're reading.
1: Yeah. He does make me think of Samuel in a lot of ways. And Samuel's one of the most probably reputable people. They name the whole book after him.
0: That's true. No one's reading first Jehoiada. Um, But yeah. (laughs) Uh, But after the death of this priest advisor, yes, as Sarah said, like Joash just starts going downhill. Um, Asherah worship, the sort of sex goddess has, has certainly started. Uh, and Jehoiada's son Zechariah confronts him about it and they end up conspiring and killing him in the temple court where they where Jehoiada wouldn't allow them to it's kill awful. in the temple court and so um, yeah it's so it's so telling and, and Ze- Zechariah's only guilt is that he was speaking God's word and they killed him for it
1: yeah and you know the, it's interesting because the prophets kind of come back into the picture here so it's like when you have a, a strong ruler or someone who fears God or a strong priest you know we don't hear anything about the prophets but once this all starts to happen and someone becomes wicked. Get the prophets step in and like you're doing the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, there's always a king, and but we kind of go a little bit um, different moments when the prophets and priests show up. And Joash is uh, defeated by, as the commentator makes sure we know, the smaller Syrian army. uh, And it's explicitly identified as the judgment of God uh, on Joash here. Uh, He ends up being injured by some of the Syrians, but then some of his servants finish off the work, kind of avenging Zechariah's death. And so, um, and while Jehoiada got this kingly honorable burial, we find out that Joash was not even put in the tombs of the kings. And so, um, yeah, there's definitely a there's definitely a much more negative take on Joash in Chronicles than there ever was in Kings.
1: Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder about the state of his heart. Like, was he truly wanting to follow Yahweh and obey Yahweh, or was he doing what uh, his father figure did? And um, and then once he lost that person who was leading him to God, he kind of lost his own faith. And it makes me think of, of us today, even as we follow God, how much our... How, as we become adults, people who grew up in the church will start to kind of separate their childhood faith from who they are individually. Uh, But just, it's an encouragement to ask God to show you in your heart where your trust may be in other believers or other theologians rather than God himself.
0: And so Amaziah, another Amaziah, uh, um, has we have so many names that repeat. It gets hard so to keep track of everybody. And then so,
1: when they're all interrelated with each other, yeah,
0: that much more. Um, but we're starting to get into the time frame where uh, the written prophets, as we know the the books of the prophets, um, will start being contemporaries of some of these kings as they start popping up. And Amaziah uh, kills those who killed his dad. He desires to obey the law of Moses in some way and holds off on killing the kids. And so, um, but Amaziah functions as like I don't know, uh, maybe like. Our first maybe secularish king, like he's generally good, but he doesn't seem to care about God that much. He's not necessarily interested in all the pagan gods either. He's just being all right. Yeah, it's kind of how he's described. He doesn't do anything terrible, but he also doesn't seem to actually care that much about Yahweh either, which is going to be part of his problem. Um, yeah. so Amaziah decides to go attack Edom uh, he decides to build up an army. I, I don't know why he's choosing to attack Edom, but he decides to, and, um, he tries to recruit a bunch of soldiers from the North and they come down to meet him. And there's a man of God that says, no, like don't work with the folks in the North. We've heard plenty of prophets basically speak to the Kings of Judah saying, stop working with the people in the North. And this is another time, but Amaziah listens at least. Um, he wins the battle. He sends the, the Northern soldiers, home with some money, but, uh, instead of going home, they seem to be mad. Uh, and I don't know whether it's, it was shameful of what Amaziah did towards them. I don't know if they're just bitter. They were looking for a fight and excited about that, but they decided to destroy a bunch of Judah, killing 3000 people, taking a bunch of spoils and yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't know about those of you who read it But I had a hard time figuring out what was right Or what was wrong in the story And um, there's probably some context I'm not getting Where the author didn't feel like it was really important To clarify what Amaziah did that was right Versus what he did that was wrong
0: Yep And Amaziah comes back from battle, um, but um, what happens in Edom doesn't necessarily stay in Edom. And he brings back the gods of Edom with him uh, for whatever reason and uh, starts worshiping some of those gods uh, as well. And the prophet comes telling Amaziah that this is not okay. Amaziah rejects him, and the prophet basically says, God's done with you. That's how you're going to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it makes me think of how often – we will worship the gift rather than the giver as well. And sure, we're not necessarily bringing idols back from foreign conquests, but oftentimes we'll trust God for something. Like take, for example, a job. We'll see God provide, and then the, and then the job will become our God. Um, and then if someone challenges us on the job becoming our God, or our idol will get mad and defensive. So uh, I, this led me to pray that I would remain wholly devoted to God and not the things that he gives me.
0: Yep. And Amaziah decides to confront the king of the north uh, for some reason, maybe because a bunch of northern soldiers ransacked a city. Um, And the northern king kind of snubs him with some awesome poetry about uh, Lebanon and stuff like that. Um, So Amaziah attacks him. He fails miserably. He's captured. uh, And the chronicler basically is like, look, this happened to Amaziah because he was worshiping Edom's gods. And then Jerusalem gets ransacked again, even tearing down a temple wall. Um, And, yeah. And so – And some folks from Jerusalem had enough of Amaziah eventually by and end his life as well. Yeah. The end of this reading of the old Testament today, Yeah, this week. All right. uh, So we're going to jump to the new Testament. We're going to wrap up Romans. Um, Paul sort of um, speaks about his time in, um, or, or it's coming to his close. He gives some benedictions. He closes with a bunch of names. And uh, part of his closing, closing is this phrase about instructing each other. Now, like, like I said in the beginning of this letter, like you have these Jewish Christians who likely planted or established this church. They got kicked out. These Gentile Christians had to mature without them. The Jews are back. And at some point, like the Jews are the keepers of the oracle and and are, would have been the only ones with some scriptures at this point. You got to remember like all most of Paul's letters still aren't written. And the, even ones that are, are likely not distributed. Um, the gospel accounts are probably oratory for the most part at this point. And so um, what they knew of the new Testament was thin. So they still had to use a lot of old Testament for reference of who this Jesus was. And so for Paul to say at the clo- towards the close of this letter, like, I, I feel confident that you guys can instruct each other. Like, Gentiles, you can instruct the Jewish people, and the Jewish people can instruct the Gentile Christians, and, and all of this can work out so that you are built up together. Like, I have full confidence in how you can be mutually beneficial to each other and how you instruct each other. Like, that's, that's so, that's so um, unexpected, I would argue. Um, but yeah,
1: and I think the other thing Paul comes back to here, which he's going to emphasize through the rest of pretty much the end of the book, aside from all of his greetings, is that we do it all for the gospel. He says, I will venture not to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me and talks about how he's made it his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not yet been named. And so he kind of also says, like, I do this all because Christ is worth it. And I want others who don't yet know the gospel to hear it and believe it.
0: Yeah. And he, and he points to his, his gospel work of, of inviting in the Gentiles. Um, and he speaks about his hindrance to coming to Rome and it wasn't because of any sort of adversary. There was no like thing working against him. He basically just said, there's been so much work for me to do and so many things are actually happening. God's really moving. I just wasn't ready to come to you guys yet. And, and he's like, I still desire to, to come and I plan on going to Spain and I'll stop in Rome on the way. But first I got to go to Jerusalem, assist the church there. And he even reminds the the people, the people particularly the Gentiles here. It's like, look, remember, I just taught you like your whole inheritance comes from these Jewish people. And um, and, and so when, when your Jewish brethren or your particularly Jewish Christian churches that are struggling, when they're in need, you got to care for them too. It's a sort of if the second born, if the second born sees the first born in need and struggling, well, you help out. So let's go do that.
1: I really like his request that they would strive together with him in their prayers. And I just think the beauty of prayers is a striving, that we are doing for others. It's a yearning and an expression of need. So we come to God as strivers in prayer for others.
0: And then we spend chapter 16 mostly uh, with personal greetings. Um, and Paul's list is quite diverse here, and it should not be lost on us. Like half this list is women. Um, There's sort of a beauty of this complimentary collection of co-laborers working for the advancement of the gospel. Like It's a time and culture, both in Rome uh, and amongst the Jews, where women kind of were relegated to second-class citizenship. And Paul's like, look, we're all in this together. And these men and these women have been a part of, of the advancement of the gospel in this church.
1: Yeah, we can see that even though Paul hasn't been to Rome, he's living out all of those Lessons and encouragements and exhortations for unity and blessing that he's spoken about. So he's greeting women. He's greeting different classes of people. He's greeting different races of people. He is showing us, by example, what it looks like to live out God's heart for unity. Even in these relationships he's got in Rome.
0: Yep. But Paul gives kind of a final warning here. Um, And it's really his only warning about false teaching. Um, And in the context of this letter, this division was probably maybe ethnocentric. That's kind of the division they struggled with. Um, Maybe there's teachers that come in and say, hey, like Jews are really the authority, or Gentiles are really the authority, or these Jews and Gentiles should separate, or whatever it may be. Um, And Paul's saying, look, avoid all that. That's the kind of division that we do not need.
1: Yeah. And he encourages them, commands them to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And so I think that's a good encouragement for us as well. We don't always need to be uh, knowledgeable or woke on what's going on in the world around us, but uh, let us devote our time to seeking wisdom and goodness.
0: Yep. And and so he kind of finishes with this through this teaching, this preaching, may you be strengthened that yes, this, this teaching and this theology does matter. And, and to begin, um, to bring about obedience and and faith that we may unpack the mysteries of God well and faithfully. And that's kind of how he leaves us.
1: Yeah, I like how Romans both begins and it ends with reference to the power of God through the gospel. And we kind of see the major themes of Romans encapsulated in this doxology. We talk about, or Paul talks about the power of God to save and establish. The gospel and ministry that was once hidden has now been revealed. The commission of God. Listen to this. The commission of God to make the good news universally known. Uh, we are invited to by everything Christ has done with us at we now know in our heads and in our hearts and are commanded to in our actions, we are invited to live by the power of Christ and share the gospel with all people.
0: Yeah. So what are some final thoughts on the book of Romans?
1: So, uh, there are some really heady theological concepts in Romans around predestination or the role of Israel or whatever, but I think it simply comes down to understanding the gospel for ourselves and then giving it away to others. I think in this time reading it, I spent a lot more time dwelling on my need for a savior and choosing to remember that me being confronted with my sinfulness is good news because it allows me to see. How great and amazing Christ in his work was, the generosity of say of God saving me is amazing um, and it's a command it's not an option, but it's a command. I'm compelled to share the gospel because of that
0: yeah and and there are many um stepping back from for the whole of Roman there's many that view this kind of letter as one giant chiasm, and I'll include a link uh, to to one of the breakdowns and the center of that is uh, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace and I think it's a tremendous lesson I think Paul still even spends the first few chapters kind of pointing out like look Jews Gentiles and, and maybe in our, our day secularists legalists, or Christians like just about all and, and that, that you need to hear the message the good news that sin no longer has dominion over you your pre-built understanding of good and bad right and wrong moral immoral whatever it may be you have to toss it out that measuring stick will never ever work and it just causes more and more sin in. And no matter what system you trust, it leads that way. And so guess what? It, it doesn't have to have dominion over you, but, but for you to fall under grace, there's freedom there. And so, um, I think that tends to be the central heart of Romans, but I also walked away, um, with a little bit of a renewed, I, I don't know if I've, I have, and and maybe it's because it's his brethren, um, and, in, in kind of his history, but, um, sometimes the, the, the desire for, um, for, for Jews to come back into the fold. And Paul even says like this, this, this inclusion of the Gentiles may stir up jealousy and and maybe be an actual lesson or a a teaching for the Jews to understand the real heart of God. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't, it makes me have a little bit of conviction just because of the geography we are in. We do have a whole section of more Orthodox Jewish people and stuff like that, of what it looks like, um, to, to really care about them as my neighbors too. Yeah. So let's move to Mark. Um, Mark is likely one of the first Gospels uh, to be written. Um, And uh, Papias, who is actually a disciple of John, uh, we get the, gospel of John from, um, actually describes Mark as being Peter's interpreter, that Mark became Peter's interpreter wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said and done by the Lord. And and so, uh, there's definitely a belief in the early church that, that Mark was a traveling companion of Peter and Peter, um, that Peter had ended up in Rome at some point, um, maybe forties, fifties, 60 AD and the latest. And so, um, and that Mark is writing all this down, uh, with, uh, definitely a Roman flair, uh, throughout his gospels. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. Even this book was sort of relegated to an afterthought for many years in the church because it's, it's, it's language is a little more clunky. Um, it, it definitely feels uh, shorter and truncated compared to the other Gospels. Jesus says a whole lot less in the Gospel of Mark. There's a whole lot of things, and yet um, kind of the rise of the, the modern era uh, where text, t- people are texts people people worried about the historicity and all that. Mark has gained a whole lot more, uh, interest. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of markers that it's a Roman Paul Mark, Mark sometimes stops and explains things that are very Jewish just so his audience understands, um, the way that Peter is, is softened a bit and, and some of Peter's best moments are highlighted, um, makes, makes us think that maybe Peter did have that sort of influence on him, even though, like I said, it's a little bit of guessing in the history to, to figure that out. But, um, yeah, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of highlighting of Jesus as a King, uh, for maybe about the first half of Mark, but in the second half, it definitely kind of points out his suffering servant, uh, side. And there's all the baggage of Messiah as a King. And there seems to be some sorting out of that. Um, there's almost an aversion to sometimes identifying him as David's, uh, heir um, in order to sometimes clarify the kind of king he's gonna be and
1: so yeah it's it's so fascinating I think it'll be really fun, I was it fun for me at least, I don't know if it's fun for you, to read through the book of Mark thinking about how when he was writing this there was not another gospel letter or gospel teaching out there and what he chose to include as the first gospel and what he left out um, and then Mark has a lot of like key words in here so you'll see the word immediately a lot, you'll see themes of Jesus is the son of God and his authority and so just kind of pay attention to the audience and you know Mark is writing this with some it feels like a form of urgency and maybe That's because he uses the word immediately all the time. Uh, But there's a lot to follow here in this short book and there's a lot of depth and it's usually all meant to illustrate something about uh, the divinity of or the or the humanity of Jesus and the gospel.
0: Yeah. And it's definitely um, to me the markers of this idea of son of God and. The first one is at Jesus' baptism in this book, where God the, God the Father only speaks twice in this whole book, and two of those are the Son of God stories. One is uh, at his baptism, where he says, this is my son. Uh, transfiguration, he says, this is the Son of God, and listen to him. And at the end of Mark's gospel, you have this Roman centurion who identifies Jesus on the cross as the Son of God. Um, and I don't think that's a mistake. I think Mark is very intentional in the crafting of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we start not with Jesus, actually, uh, but with John the Baptist. Or genealogy, (laughs) or the Immaculate
1: Conception. It's just fascinating. We start with John the Baptist.
0: Yeah, so right from the get-go, uh, Mark also establishes a genre. Uh, the use of that term euangelion, which we translate as gospel or good news, um, it carried with it for a Roman audience, it would have carried with it this it, it, the pronouncement of the king, the victory of this new kingdom. It very much had Caesar, like there was a euangelion of Rome and a euangelion of Caesar. Uh, so they would have understood that, and even in the Jewish context. I mean, you had prophets that talk about uh, the good news of the Messiah to come. You had Isaiah and folks use that same sort of language. And so um, Mark's use even of Isaiah or Malachi or Exodus in the beginning would harken back to that. And even calling Jesus Christ, the Messiah, uh, would lead us that direction. Um, and Mark uses the Torah right from the get-go. So he's not, even though his audience may not be the most Jewish compared to like Matthew, he's also not disconnecting to the fact that Jesus is certainly Jewish. Um, and and he uses these minor prophets, this major prophet, the Torah, speaking of one who's preparing a way because God's about to do this main, new thing, uh, which happened in the past, but it's happening here. Um, and so, yeah, and John the Baptist Baptist sort of serves as this Elijah-esque character wearing basically an Elijah costume in some ways, calling people to repentance. And so, um, yeah. And you can even imagine the people in power at this time who have seen, um, who, who hear from John the Baptist here basically like, hey, you in power, you're like Ahab, the worst of all kings. Like people need to repent. Like, And he's being the new Elijah, which is so fascinating.
1: Yeah.
0: Yep. That's all. <laughs> Use said
1: on my notes. <laughs> my
0: bad. Uh, and so we get the baptism of Jesus. It's very Trinitarian, which we don't always get in, in the Gospels. But you have Jesus here. You have the Father speaking. You have the Spirit descending. Um, and if Jesus did not sin, like why baptize? Um, and there's definitely theories with that. that he's identifying with sinners that showing um, all righteousness or fulfilling all righteousness. Like we as followers of him, like this, if we are to walk the way of righteousness includes repentance and baptism. And um, yeah, there's, there's all these details that are included in here. I I geek out on this because there's just so much to include, like where Elijah was taken up and the heavens were rent. Like this time the heavens are rent and the spirit comes down. It's a very, uh, it's not escapism. It's coming like to, to dwell, to, to be in our world. Um, And, and yeah, it, the very voice of God confirms this quote Psalm 2 Psalm 42 Um, yeah
1: I think one of the neat things that the first thing you learn about Jesus is that he's from Nazareth which is a small nowhere town um, aside from you know Mark introducing him as the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but
0: yeah, yeah you have um, disciples who are even like, what what good comes out of Nazareth, right. like a nowhere town?
1: So we see an immediate association of Jesus with uh, with humble beginnings, being one of the people um, who can relate to and connect to the people.
0: Yeah, we even get this sort of new creation kind of theme established um, in in Aramaic uh, um, Old Testament, uh, which probably would have been Mark's original, like spoken, his, his probably primary language. Uh, in Genesis, the spirit over the water uh, is described as fluttering like a dove. Um, and so the idea that um, the Holy Spirit has this sort of dove-like appearance um, would have signaled over over these waters of baptism, would have signaled um, a little bit of this creation um, kind of tie-in.
1: Yeah, and I think actually we don't see a dove in Scripture between until now – since the flood until Noah's flood. Since Noah's flood. So (laughs) there's another idea of recreation story. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing worth noting is that God affirms Jesus and God's love for Jesus before any miracles or ministry done are done. And this is the road, this is the identity we get to assume as well. We are affirmed and accepted by God because of God, not because we have to prove ourselves to Him. So we also, no matter what we do, are considered beloved um, and by God.
0: And so we get the temptation of Jesus. Uh, Mark uh, makes this a whole two verses compared to some of the other gospel writers, but... Um it should always be noted that when there's a creation story, there's a temptation that immediately follows. And the creation of Israel uh, um, or even the, the recreation of Noah involved the, the temptation um, uh, right after that with uh, the, the grapes and even the nakedness that needs to get covered. The creation of Israel certainly involved the, the test in the desert. And this new creation involves a sort of temptation moment afterwards as well. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, and here again we see Jesus – with, you know, his second act really of identifying with the people, maybe the third, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't want to number it. But well, It's the second um, Adam-ish
0: to him. Like he's identifying as, if, if the first Adam is this picture of humanity, or like this... Um, Uh, representative of humanity and he tempted and he fails this Jesus as representative of humanity is doing is walking through this too.
1: Right. So we see him being associated from like a small humble town. We see him being baptized and now he, we see him as connecting or being associated with the people through being tempted.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, and Jesus begins his ministry. And so, uh, John's death in some way or John's arrest. He's not dead yet. Um, ushers in Jesus's journey to, to basically start, um, maybe he he was studying under John and now he's got to go do some work. And his first spoken spoken words in the gospel of Ma- Mark should be so noted that the time mm-hmm. is fulfilled. So this Kairos time, this God time is now the kingdom and it's not the kingdom of Caesar. It's not the kingdom of the heir of David it is the kingdom of God is yeah. at hand. So repent. Turn or return, as uh, Hebrew kind of thinks of that word, mm-hmm. Re- return and believe in this good news, which Mark is about to spend 15 chapters unpacking who this king is, what his kingdom is like. So, it's yeah. interesting
1: just to kind of like reflect on briefly about how, when we say the gospel, we say Jesus, you know, life, death and resurrection, and then anticipating the second coming. Um, and he, the first thing Jesus says is believe in the gospel, but people still don't know like right. what that gospel is yet. It hasn't happened yet, which is right. kind of interesting to think about.
0: It's, it's, it's the opening heralding. It's like, here's the good news of Caesar. Now let me tell you all about Caesar. It's like, here's the good news. Believe in this. Okay. Let's unpack this for 15 chapters. Um, and so, what kind of king is this Jesus going to be? And his initial establishing of of council and court is some fishermen. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, the first guys he surrounds himself with are these young guys, probably even teenagers. Um, and and there's two different pairs of them that that he enlists. And and yes, it might have been an honor to follow a rabbi, certainly at that time. But um, this is also a rabbi who does not seek position, honor, title, or even a home, um, and rejects. He gets rejected for his belief and practices. So I, I don't know how people would have viewed following this Jesus.
1: Yeah. So and then he starts healing, or yeah. I mean. I really think that this next story is m- much more about his authority over teaching rather than healing. Though we yeah. see him healing as well. Yeah,
0: there, there's there's definitely this um, establishment of Jesus' authority, like. He teaches, and they they even note, look, you, you, this guy's teaching with us authority we have not heard, and then this exorcism happens, and it was commonplace probably in their time to do these like magical incantations, these pseudo medical practices like drilling holes in people's heads and all this crazy stuff, and and Jesus's authority is, come out, <laughs> and and the demons respond, and he's able to do this, and so um, there's there's the establishment of Jesus as this authority character.
1: And that it's interesting because again they call him Jesus of Nazareth in here. So Again, emphasizing his humanity, and yet he has also declared the Holy One of God. And not only that, the ones declaring him that first is are the demons. And so we see the first verbal affirmation of his deity or his divinity. Um, it's his enemies.
0: And, and I'll just say this now, just because we don't have to revisit it every single time. There's going to be a lot of moments where Jesus like doesn't want other people to know about who, who he is or some of his identity. Uh, and I think the reason why, and I think this is established and marked, um, you have have a lot of um, messiahism at the time, um, which carried with it some of nationalism, rebuilding the empire of, of Israel defeated the outsider restoration of Israel as this dominant nation, all this kind of stuff. Um, not only that, but even like the consumer mindset that we have now related to signs and wonders, always oh, doing all these healings. Let me go to him and get some healings. And um, all these things will become or be problems for Jesus. And so uh, for him, who is this so not matching their expectations of what the king should be. At some point he's like, look, don't start telling people about me because your messages are just going to be all over the place and are going to misidentify me. And I think his desire is to, to, to present himself as this upside down kingdom king, uh, the kingdom of God that doesn't match all their expectations of what they expect him to be. And, and so, um, there's definitely this Messiah secret in Mark, um, that, that I think has that reason behind it.
1: Yeah. So he goes to heal money. He heals, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Yeah. Who's
0: um, likely preaching the sermon. And like, Hey, my mom,
1: Right. And I just, I like that she gets better and then she goes back to serving. Um, And she probably would have been serving if she weren't sick as well. But when God does a work in us, we are often changed from the inside, but are also invited to be faithful in doing what is set before us. So I think she's a good example of no matter what God does in and through us, our invitation is service wherever we are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we get Mark highlighting a moment of Jesus sort of retreating and praying. His popularity is gro- growing pretty quickly and even in Capernaum. And he retreats. Like he's not the one who's seeking power and popularity. He's not seeking to be on the street corner where everybody can hear him pray, but to retreat, to be with God.
1: Yeah. And let's just remember that if Jesus needs time alone to be with God, so do we. Don't don't neglect it.
0: And the things happening in this 24-hour little scene in Capernaum start happening everywhere in Galilee. Jesus goes. He's teaching. He's performing these Authority confirming miracles, and that should be noted. Yeah. And then we're encountered by a leper. And, like, let's, I mean, even let's take a step back. I mean, Mark's initial stories about this new king and this new kingdom are recruiting a couple or four blue collar. On the margin, kind of characters, not no one of significance. Uh, he he is holy yet interacts with these unholy demons. He establishes authority. He heals a whole lot of people who are sick. He preaches in Galilee, which is not the most exciting of all areas of of Israel, and he touches a leper. Like this, this is an odd king that we are very much introduced to just in chapter one. And by Jesus' time, there's such a stigma around the lepers. Um, and, and you gotta imagine, you got a bunch of Israelites who have returned from captivity. And at least, particularly this group in the north, have a very much this idea that, um, the reason we were in exile is because we disobeyed what God commanded us to. So let's have a radical obedience to the Torah. And, and what they cause is sort of a fence being built around the Torah. There's extra guardrails. Um, they want to make sure to avoid any possible trespassing, whether it's the moral law or even the ceremonial law. And so they had all these ways that actually end up pushing, particularly people who are broken or hurting or had disease and all that, pushing them further and further and further to the margins. Um, which totally lost the heart of the the law, which is why Jesus comes around to the Pharisees, it's like, look, you 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 tithe the tenth, you you do all these things, but then you don't take care of the, the poor or the orphan widow and stuff like that. Like you've lost the The the, the central things, the essentials, the most important things. Um, anyways, uh, so Jesus. Uh, is interacting with these lepers who are fully on the margins of, G- of Jewish society and even Roman society. Um, and it would have been quite a scandal to even hear that the king, for some reason, is interacting with this leper and touches the leper. This Jesus, who was just introduced as a holy one, touches something that was like as, as unclean as you get. Like a dead body might be the only thing that would be more unclean than this leper. And Jesus doesn't just heal him, like Jesus touches him. Like there's such a loving moment in the fact that Jesus could just command him to be healed, but this man who probably hasn't been touched by anybody for however long, like Jesus stops and touches him. Um, And yet Jesus isn't rejecting the Torah. He says, all right, go to the priesthood and get confirmed that you've basically been healed, which is what the Mosaic law says to go do.
1: Yeah, so he's showing himself as the, the true fulfilling of the law.
0: Yeah, for real. Like you, you, you miss the compassion part of the law. I'm going to show you what that looks like, but I'm not going to reject the law. We're still going to follow this. And so, um, yeah, Psalm 149.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is all devoted to, to praising the Lord. He is worthy of praise. There are so many things we pray, praise, whether it's a new restaurant or um, whatever other kind of things are in our lives. But let's slow down pause and consider all of the different ways that we can praise the lord
0: yeah it's it's definitely um a psalm that even has opening uh, parallels to psalm 98 there's some uh, celebratory pieces to this but uh, the line stood out to me is this reference to two-edged sword because i was reading it and there's other interpreters that like this is about the end times about judgment and all this kind of stuff but at the same time the book of hebrews references two-edged sword and and Trust me, the book, the author of the book of Hebrews definitely knows his Old Testament <laughs> and would know Psalm 149. And so if this writer is writing, says the word of God is like this two-edged sword, and it lays people bare, it shows them their thoughts, it helps judge them, uh, and, and that's what the word of God helps do. And so uh, I think that provides an interpretive key for how we should uh, view Psalm 149. That's not this like… Uh, eschatological victory. We're going to conquer our foes, but um, the way the word of God actually brings to both the, the good and the bad to light. Yep. So next week.
1: So Elisha is going to die next week in what we're reading.
0: Wah, wah. Spoiler alert.
1: Pay, so pay <laughs> attention to the circumstances and the stories that are surrounding this. And then um, the loss of Elisha, where does that leave Israel? And as you're reading about Jesus, you know, we talked about how Elisha is kind of a former picture of, of what Jesus was eventually going to be. Mm, I think I said that wrong. Elisha was a type of Christ. Um, so pay attention to that as well. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus's first teaching. So why does Mark choose what he does as far as um, sharing Jesus's initial teachings when we consider the audience?
0: Yep. And so we are finally getting into, as I said, uh, the the kings that were written during these, uh, or the written prophets were written during the, these different kings were starting to be introduced to. And it's helpful to know which prophets write into who, which kingdom they're writing to, where it's. Amos nutters right to the north versus Isaiah who might be addressing the south. So, um, yeah, it, it's important. Like we, we find out that Jonah is a prophet to this certain King. And so, um, yeah, keep track of those because it helps as you're reading those prophets in their context to know, all right, who's this king? What's really been going on for these people? All that kind of stuff. Uh, and then New Testament. Um, yeah, Mark keeps highlighting this unique king and, um, what, what kind of king would they expect in Rome? And what kind of king are we getting in these stories of Jesus? Like, how is Mark rep- representing this counterintuitive, upside down sort of king of, where he's healing and sitting with people in the margins and doing good for others. And I want you to think about that of what expectations people would have had as kingship and power and all that. And what Mark is trying to tell us about this different King. So that's it. Thanks y'all.
1: Thank you.